Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're welcome to today's Signpost webinar. We're hoping you're keeping safe and well. Today, we're going to be discussing water quality and how researchers, economists, and behavioral scientists are working with agricultural advisors and farmers to develop new approaches to protecting water quality. The Watermark Project is a cross-agency collaboration focused on mitigating agricultural impacts through research and knowledge exchange. And this morning, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Mary Ryan, who's an environmental economics researcher with Chagisk and also coordinator of the Watermark Project. Dr. Paula Cullen is a postdoctoral researcher with the Watermark Project. Professor Cotillo Donoghue uh, of University Galway. And finally, we ha- also have Daniel Urban, who's a Welsh scholar and PhD student in University of Galway. So you're all very welcome to this morning's uh, webinar. Um, Mary, you're going to be leading the charge with the presentation. But before we, we do that, maybe you could give us a little uh, background to the, the Watermark Mark project. Sure, Mark, and thanks for the opportunity to present here this morning. It's going to be a fairly high-level whistle-stop tour of the work that we're doing in the project. It's an EPA and Department of Agriculture-funded product project. It's now in its fourth year, so we reckoned it was timely to, to present some um, high-level results. We still have a bit to go in the project, um, but as you said... How long is the project altogether, Mary? Four years. So it's in the fourth year now. Yeah. Um, So um, it's about, as you said, bringing the science, the economics and the behavioral psychology together and working very much with farmers, particularly in the asset program to look at um, coming up with localized solutions for local water quality issues. Um, So, yeah, um, without further ado, I'll start into the slideshow and um, we can I can start to explain some more about the project then. You can see that um, from the first slide there, it's a cast of thousands, as is the case in in many projects. And there are just three presenters here today. And just to point out that the work that we're presenting includes the work of of a number of different people, and they'll be mentioned on on the slides as well. So um, in terms of um, the context where we are now, uh, just a week ago or so, we got the latest EPA water quality report, which shows that we're a long way from meeting the targets of having good quality water by 2027. Um, If you look at the blue and the green segments there, they add up to 54%, and that's for high and good water quality, but we need to be at 100% by 2027. And the EPA also remind us that agriculture is a significant pressure on water quality in Ireland. So that's kind of the high level need for the work that we're doing. Water quality is a peculiarly complex and challenging issue in that it's very, very localized. The nutrient and sediment losses are context specific. And what this means that in any given location, there are interactions between activity, which could be agriculture or forestry or septic tanks, the local hydrology, the soils, the weather, the slopes, all of these factors um, uh, have an impact on how agriculture affects water quality. Um, So there's spatial, from a a research perspective, we say that there's spatial variation, but there's also temporal variation. So these factors change over time. They're not static. They change year on year, depending on changes in activity and weather patterns. And then to make it more complex, nutrient losses are largely diffuse. 
So it's very difficult to link pollution outcomes directly to the inputs. And we have particular problems in that there's a lag between the polluting event and the resulting pollution, but also from the, the, the type of work that we're doing and the type of work that a programme like ASAP is doing, there's also a lag between a mitigation activity and the resulting remediation. So all these factors have to be taken into account. And this is a very busy slide, but I'm going to talk you through it very quickly, bit by bit. If we start down at the bottom left-hand corner, um, we look at an innovation system. And what that simply means is we need to look at all the different people, organizations within agriculture or the agri-environment who can influence water quality mitigation. Um, and that was the first element of the project. Top left, we have risk assessment. And this is where the scientists looked at coming up with risk assessments for PLOS in particular. And then we do a whole component of spatial work within the project where we take GIS data and EPA models. And Yuting has come up with um, very neat GIS modeling um, methodologies that allow us to look at the activity in catchments and the water quality and see, can we uh, decide what's impacting on water quality within particular catchments? Daniel then has done a lot of work on the cost effectiveness, and this feeds into um, uh, the GIS work because he's looking at cost effectiveness at a spatial scale. In other words, at an electoral district or a small, small area spatial localized scale. Then if we move on to ASAP, um, we look at with all the measures that are applied um, or that, that ASAP advisors uh, propose to farmers, we, we're trying to see of those measures, what are the characteristics of those measures? What are the costs? What's the ease of use like? What's the farmer acceptance like? Um, Dennis and his colleagues in University of Galway in the behavioral psychology component, they're looking, they're interviewing farmers and advisors to see what can we glean from their interaction with ASAP and with trying to improve water quality. And then we also look at win-win measures for water quality and see what are the components there and what we're trying to come up with at the end of the day and working very much with, with Noel and Paul as is doing this work at the moment, uh, trying to look at uh, take the measures in general from ASAP and see what are the components that we could use to see what are the measures that are easiest and have the most impact for farmers so that we can try to generalize some of the very specialized information that's coming from ASAP. And then Cahill, who's involved in all of, all of these uh, different elements, uh, his big thing is to integrate all of this to have economic uh, scientific and behavioural outputs from the project. So that's the hard part. It gets much easier after this. Um, so in terms of the biophysical risk, Karen Daly and her team looked at uh, pilot farms to come up with um, the risks for P-loss assessment. And they devised an actual uh, risk assessment and the associated measures to mitigate these risks. And they have published this information but they have also then, which is critical within our project, they've spent a lot of time um, training up advisors and upscaling advisors on the implementation, on the risk assessment method, methodology itself and the training up of advisors. So in terms of looking at the innovation system, we want what we want to see is um, 
who can influence water quality? Uh, first of all, it's farmers, and they're the closest to the streams and the rivers, but there isn't one time of type of farmer. There are intensive and extensive farmers. But also there isn't just one context, and we saw already that water quality is context specific, and there are areas that are high risk, and there are areas that are low risk. So you could have intensive farmers in high risk areas or low risk areas, but the same incentives aren't going to work for these types of farmers. So already we started with two different types of farmers who might react to two different types of incentives. Now we have four different types of, of risk and incentives. And there, what are the incentives that are out there? There are many different types of incentives. There are political and social, there are markets and subsidies and premiums and national policy, local monitoring and enforcement um, by the local authorities. But then there are also national rules and regulations like the nitrates directive and cap and cross compliance. And there's national level information in terms of research. And there's also national level advice. And there are lots of different actors who are providing these incentives. And I suppose the big message to take away from something like this is that to influence the actors on the right hand side, so to influence farmers, you also need to be able to look at all the, these different bodies and to influence how these bodies provide incentives or provide regulation in a way that they can be taken up in the best way possible by the farmers. So working with ASAP then, um, we, we, have, uh, we can look at, at many different things. And I have to, to say that working with ASAP has been an absolute pleasure because the guys in ASAP and the girls in ASAP have collected a huge amount of data on an ongoing basis. And it gives a, a project like ours a lot of, of information to work with and a lot of nice people to work with as well. So we look at, and Paula will talk to you about the measures the farm and farmer characteristics. So what farmers adopt measures quickly, what farmers don't. And then Dennis and his team looked at, at the psychology of, of interaction with ASAP and water quality. And Cahill then will finally tell you more about um, the behavioural analysis that we're doing with ASAP at the moment. And I'll hand you over to Paula, who's the postdoc working on the project at the moment. Okay, so my role in Watermark, is, uh, is with the help of Noel, is to analyze the measures that ASAP advisors recommend to farmers. These measures focus on about 44 different environmental issues that impact water quality. The issues are then classified by type, so farmyard, land management, or nutrient management. And there are around 90 different actions that might be recommended, resulting in about 300 measure issue combinations. Each of these measures has, has been characterized by a number of different features uh, based on expert opinion, we've ranked these. So this includes the knowledge level required to undertake the measure, the level of costs cost involved, both the direct costs that are upfront or ongoing, as well as indirect costs such as lost productivity and transaction costs, i.e. the hassle or admin time. How each of these measures fits with social norms is also collected, so meaning whether it aligns to conventions of both farmers and advisors. And finally, the environmental impact of each measure was estimated. This graph gives an example of some, some of the data. So each of the measures is ranked on a scale of one to three. The left three uh, 
uh, for farmer norms with a higher value, meaning that it more closely aligns with what farmers would perceive as the usual way of farming. So the orange and brown there means it is like the way that they would usually farm. And we can see that measures assigned to help farmyard issues are more aligned to the norms. The right, sh the right three show the level of knowledge required with three for brown in the diagram being higher. A larger amount of the images indicate a medium to high level of knowledge required. The level of different costs was also estimated on a scale of one to three for each measure. We can see there is variation across cost types. While not all measures have ongoing costs, the second column there, most measures have transaction costs, such as hassle admin. This work is at an early stage, and the overall goal is to identify a group of measures that fit norms and have relatively low costs compared to the level of environmental impact achieved. And this will hopefully be done through the cost sharing of measures. This will have the benefit of being able to prioritize the identified group of measures and in turn be able to prioritize general advisor and farmer training to measures that would have high uptake and high impact. So my work builds upon that that's already completed in Watermark, looking at farmer uptake and completion of measures and recommended to farmers and assets. Some key takeaways from this analysis were that farms in higher medium risk areas are less likely to have started measures than those in low risk areas. Also, catchments with diffuse PN and sediment losses are less likely to have engaged than those with point source losses, who were more likely to have engaged, started and completed measures. Farm characteristics were also analyzed and the results indicated that livestock systems were less likely than tillage farmers to have started measures. Additionally, agri-environment scheme participants were more likely to start and complete measures than non-participants. Another area of analysis in the Watermark project has been completed by Daniel Urban, a PhD student with the University of Galway in Shrook. He's been looking at the cost effectiveness of nitrogen mitigation measures and identifying how it varies spatially. For each electoral district, Daniel has calculated for a range of measures, the marginal abatement cost or cost per unit of emissions abated. This is determined by looking at predicted changes in output and costs over the change in emissions. So for example, we have wind, wind measures, such as an increase in the dairy breeding index, which would result in a savings per unit abated represented by green in the map on the left. By comparison, a win-lose measure, such as increasing slurry storage efficiency, where for each unit of emission reduced, there is a cost signified by orange and red and yellow in the map on the right. These two maps showing a reduction in chemical fertilizer by 10 and 20% show how useful this approach can be in showing the spatial variation of marginal abatement cost, with the map on the left showing variation from savings to cost depending on the area. We can also see the improvement in the marginal abatement cost for most areas under a 20% reduction over the 10%, which shows that it is also useful for comparing measures. Daniel's work, when combined with the behavioral and environmental spatial modeling will also, that also took place in Watermark, which Kahul will be talking about soon, can aid in identifying a cost-effective combination of measures. And I'll now pass on to Kahul. Thanks, Paula. Uh, you might put the next slide, please.
So this slide describes the the cattle numbers over time. Um, so the number of number of animals is one of the the key drivers of water lines. The top line, the blue line, is the total number of cattle, and um, we see the the um, the numbers on the right. And uh, in the in the June um, uh, statistics, um, there were about 7.4 million cattle in in the country. And it's a little bit less than the highest number ever that occurred in 1998 after the McSharry reforms. Um, this is driven um, by the, the bottom two lines, which are the number of, of um, dairy cows in grey and the number of soccer cows in, in yellow, where uh, post-dairy expansion, the number of dairy cows has, has, has decreased. It's decreased at a lower rate. Than the number of dairy cows has increased, and hence we we've seen a, a rise in the number of of animals in the country um, since uh, since 2011. Next slide, please. So, we um, Yu Ting Meng, um, our postdoc, um, worked with us on analysing the EPA water quality data, um, going. And this graphic describes the trend in the the various different characteristics. I guess the, the, the biggest uh, change we see is the, is the fall in high status, so really good quality water over time. Partic that particularly happened in the, back in the 70s. Um, on the other hand, the, the share of bad um, water quality has also declined. And over time, the, the share of uh, good water quality status increased. But we see a turning point um, in 2011 where the, um, the share of, of areas with good water, good water quality status has declined. Another thing we're interested in is um, the, the, the mobility of these water quality values. It isn't the case that, um, uh, that all areas stay the same or when they make a change, they stay the same after that. There's quite a lot of entry and exit, natural variation, and we see that can be reduced to, due to, to weather or other local conditions. So over time, we see about 40% uh, the dark bar uh, exit and a rising uh, 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 and about 20% uh, enter. Um, so um, the problem here is that more areas have exited high water quality status than, than enter. But it's relevant to, 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 uh, to highlight that there is natural variation. And um, one might consider more frequent water quality monitoring in sensitive areas, given this natural variation, to, to understand the drivers. It's one of the reasons why the Chagas catchment program has close to real-time um, monitoring of water quality to capture this natural variation. Next slide, please. We assembled a very um, substantial spatial database linking water quality and economic activity, including um, upstream activity, settlement patterns, um, uh, waste uh, management, and so on. We published a number of papers on this topic. We find that there is a clear link, unsurprising, between um, animals and fertilizer and, uh, and, and waste on, on water quality, and, other, and there's, there's other drivers as well, which we won't go through here. But one of the key messages we find is that for a given amount of animals, the relationship of water quality has improved over time. There has been very substantial investment, uh, very substantial practice changes and regulation changes over time. But they've had a statistically significant impact over time. But the, the, the amount of animals in the system has varied. And so in the period between 2000 and, and 2010, we saw improvement in water quality due to both 
improved relationship between activity and water quality and a falling number of animals. But since um, 2010, we've seen a continued improvement in the relationship between agriculture and water quality because of ongoing measures, but that the increase in the number of animals has meant uh, has increased at a faster rate than we might call that environmental efficiency has improved. And so it's, it's quite similar to, to, to climate change, where we've seen um, a, 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 a improved um, car, uh, or less carbon per, per unit output, but there's more animals and so there's more emissions. So it's, it's quite a similar um, issue as in between water quality and climate change. This is a very busy looking graphic uh, or map. Um, with our spatial data, we can dig down to local areas. And this is a map of, in blue, the areas that maintained high status, uh, green entered, yellow fluctuated, and, and red exit. And no matter what type of analysis we, found, we looked at, we found very localized um, trends and also very localized drivers of the trends. Um, so um, the local situation is very important. That is the main conclusion from this. So from a, a planning point of view, from an economic point of view, if you think in terms of national solutions, like having a single nitrate zone um, to a, a local problem where the issues are very localized, then one may um, have a problem so that water quality issues are not solved because the regulations are too weak. If you have a national, if you, if you, if you have low regulations, if you have high regulations, then um, and targets in the lowest common denominator, the, the areas that with, with the highest need in terms of water quality, then you may find you impose too high a cost on areas that don't need it. So the, the conclusion really here is from the analysis is that um, lo local problems require local solutions. So we need to, tr to try to nuance our regulations, our practices, our, our advice to the local situation, which requires local information. We did a lot of work on behavior in, in various dimensions. And we saw earlier um, a, a map highlighting uh, win-wins, and it, it's a very strong message from the, from the Chagas-Mac curve for, for, for climate change, and also a strong message from water quality-based MACs, that there are opportunities for, for farmers to both have benefits for the environment and to improve their, their profitability. The question is, if win-wins exist, why aren't they already uh, in practice? Why don't people do it already? And so some of the reasons, um, information failures, they might know about it, um, uh, that profitability isn't the only driver, that sometimes measures take too much time, they might be too much hassle, or they aren't consistent what people have always done. It requires a, a change, and for all of us, it's hard to make changes, even if it's in our, our best interest. There might also be um, risk attitudes. We, we see this Rogers uh, on the right about uh, different types of adopters. Early adopters who are taking risk, they want to try new things. Mainstream who kind of wait to see what other people will do before they make a decision. And then late adopters um, who, who may never make a change. And so in terms of planning, um, we need to, to try to get these early adopters moving to build uh, norms for the adoption of new policies because farmers we you know learn from other farmers um, before that the mainstream uh, will engage and uh, next slide please 
Other issues might be insufficient skills, so training is important, or capital constraints. If you have to invest, you may not be able to afford it now or might be able to borrow. And there's also uncertainty about outcomes before you engage, given the very localised, including farm-specific impacts of changes. Next slide, please. So um, um, Dennis O'Hora, Rosella Domenico and Jenny McSharry, colleagues of, of mine from um, the psychology uh, school in, in Galway, did qualitative field work where they they had case they had um uh, case study uh, small group and discussions with with farmers and advisors and and they, they have a lot of very interesting conclusions um at that level you can really dig down into the into the detail of issues that that concern um different stakeholders and i guess a consistent issue be between both farmers and advisors is the need for practical support we're looking for people to make changes, both farmers and advisors. And so to be given the time and the resources to be able to do that. A very strong message is that both groups value each other, they respect each other, and they value the input of each other. And some particular issues, uh, high level issues that have come out um, is that farmers are influenced by peers. It's a very strong message across uh, all uh, knowledge, uh, technology transfer and adoption. That in um, the area of water quality, uh, farmers feel quite isolated and ill-equipped to make changes. And that advisors feel constrained by organizational structures. So this goes back to Mary's original point about thinking about the whole system and not just about the farmers. And some very, very interesting lessons in this research to facilitate organizational change. We also analyzed a survey that was collected on farms where we looked at a, a range of different um, uh, measures. Um, these are fine measure, nutrient management planning, soil testing, avoid spreading, fencing watercourses, lime application. So on-farm measures that would improve water quality. And we looked at the behavioral drivers, beliefs and attitudes, the personal attitudes of farmers, social norms, the influence of peers, knowledge or know-how, and the importance of resources. And across all the measures, we find that norms are really important. The influence of peers and know-how or knowledge um, is consistently strong across measures. So the importance of learning from other farmers and providing knowledge to farmers, that, that farmers who feel they, they, they know enough are likely to engage because most people want to do their best. We find for resources, we find a conflicting story. We find different relationship between measures that have a win-win that benefit the farmer and the environment versus those that have a win-lose. And so we need to perhaps nuance the financial incentives for measures um, that involve uh, uh, win-lose. So that, that's, a, that's a key lesson from that. Next, next slide, please. This large graph is, 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 is our um, um, uh, map of the um, the way in which research translates into um, farm advice. So Chagas has production research, environmental research. There are specialists on both sides. There are frontline advisors, uh, enterprise, business and, and technology and environment, and also private advisors. And um, um, environmental working groups in Chagas bring both the, the advice and the research together um, to help knowledge transfer. Historically, enterprise advisors focus on intensive farmers and uh, environmental on extensive reps farmers. Um, but uh, we heard about the, the ASAP program, um, focusing on areas with, with the highest uh, need. 
And um, uh, so they're specialist advisors who understand the complexity that Paula was talking about. And so the, the, the challenge in the future is to mainstream. And that would pose, sorry, next slide, please. Yeah, it, it, um, so the challenge there is to train ma mainstream advisors to be able to incorporate water quality advice. And so the need for in-service training, decision support tools, um, uh, facts and guides, fa fact books and guides to help mainstream advisors to translate that specialist knowledge of ASAP advisors. Next, next slide, please. So to my final slide, in summary, we, we, we for local solutions for, for local pro localized problems requires local solutions, information, incentives. We have to take a system perspective, not only see it as a farmer's need to change behavior, we all need to change our behavior um, to change the incentives that farmers face. To make local decisions, we need more localized activity and scientific data. But we need to bear in mind that there is a cost of doing this. Um, and so there is a balance to be struck between a more national incentives and knowledge and, and localized uh, um, knowledge to support those local solutions for, for local problems. Thanks very much. Thank you, Cahill and Mary and Paula. Uh, excellent presentation. Uh, really enjoy those slides. Um, really gives a good insight to, into, into the work that you're doing around uh, water quality. Um, Cahill, you presented some interesting graphs there around the the uh, trends in cattle numbers. I'm sure a lot of our, our viewers this morning would be very interested in the, the relationships there between cattle numbers and, and, and like you talked about, the environmental efficiency. And if I have it right, you're, you're talking about similar to the, let's say, the, the, the carbon footprint of, of an animal, that the, the water footprint or environmental efficiency is improving but that is is probably being being cancelled out to some degree by increases in numbers. Is that that that's fair correct? Assessment? That's correct. So um, um, before 2010, we saw both going in the same direction. There was a, a, there was an improved footprint, and there were fewer animal numbers. There was a decline. We might might remember from that that earlier graph. But post 2011, because the animal numbers started to increase before uh, milk quota was uh, abolished as, as, as people geared up. And the, I think there was some loosening of, of the quotas before, after the cap health check. And um, so even though this continued improvement, we see that when we look at the water quality relative to um, uh, the number of animals in the, in the catchment, um, it's the, num the number of animals and growing at a at a faster rate than the, than the improvements, and as a result, we see a worsening water quality in that period um, since since 2011. Mary, I'm I'm particularly interested in your your slides around that systems approach or the innovation system and the need for everybody to be on the same page, uh, all of the different agencies and and influencers. And this is something we're very interested in from a Chagas Connected perspective. Any any recommendations coming from from that work? Um, I suppose one of the things is that the, the recognition that everybody within the innovation system has a part to play in finding the solution and also the connectedness of everybody within the innovation system is really important. We found out at the, the very beginning of the project, one of the first things that we did was brought everybody that you see on that map into a room together. And that was, I suppose, when was it, July 2018 or something. And even though we'll say ASAP and Law Pro, you know, water quality was, was becoming way more high profile, some 
And many of the people in the room had never actually sat down together in a room to discuss what the issues were and how they could all contribute and network with each other to finding better solutions. Um, and that was one of the, the first things that we did in the project. And we took on board all of their suggestions then in trying to refine what we were doing throughout the project. But that I suppose that was a key learning to us and to the people sitting around the, the big table that day as well. If I had a question, I have a question for Paula in relation to the the, the knowledge required to implement di different measures. Uh, I'm interested, Paula, to to understand how you assess that. Um, was 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 there expert input there? How, how did how did you assess that based on the different measures? Um, yes. So all of our this, this the rankings from one to three were done by an expert, and um, we will in the future also. Uh, validate that with uh, further experts um, to, to, to look at it. But, yeah. Great, great. Thanks. Thanks, Paula. Uh, so we've lots of questions coming through and do please keep your questions coming uh, through to us. If you have a question for one of our specific one for speakers, please do um, put that, that person's name. But just before we go to the, the audience questions, I do have one more question, Cahill, in relation to those trends that you were, you were presenting. And there was a a significant uh, drop in, in water quality, or I think it was river water quality that you were showing from around 2010, if I'm not mistaken. There was a, mm -hmm. a dip yeah. there. Is, is there any, uh, you know, linkages with with any other trends that we, we, we know that uh, has caused that um, outside of agriculture or agricultural? We do look at... Um, at, at uh, economic changes and changes in terms of settlement patterns. But that's probably the biggest single uh, land use change in that period. Um, the the uh, agriculture expansion uh, post, um, that is, my sense is that that is the um, that is the biggest driver. The, the water quality has not worsened at the same rate as the animal number has gone up, reflecting the, the improved relationship between animals. I mean, I think that's a, that's an important message that um, it's not that nothing has been done. There's been quite a significant impact mm -hmm. on what's been happening on farms. Yeah, it was it was 2015, wasn't it, when the uh, the quota regime was uh, abolished? If I'm if I'm not mistaken, there was there was there was a, it, there wasn't a quite a direct relationship there. Sorry, I missed that, Mark. Sorry, I was just talking about the, the abolition of the quotas, Cahill. Uh, that was 2015, if I remember correctly. Um, so so the, there, there isn't any uh, distinct relationship there. Uh, maybe that's maybe at a two national or general level. Uh, just interested in your thoughts on that. that, that is, is, there, is there a connection there? Well, the, the, the animal numbers started to grow. 2011 was the lowest year. Um, so there was a decline after the financial crisis, and then there was a build-up of stock in advance of of um, the quota being being abolished. So um, the the animal numbers were rising from from 2011. Okay. A lot of the growth actually happened before before 2015. Okay, okay, great. Uh, Noel, we have some excellent questions coming through from our our viewers. If you want to, yeah, absolutely, some really good ones. And, and as as uh, Mark says, keep them coming. Um, Couple of questions, kind of, I'm going to group them together around um, uh, around the, the increasing of stock numbers and the impact on water quality. And I suppose, Mary, at the very start, you kind of outlined 
the the parameters or the or, or the things that influence water quality. Um, maybe uh, you know, could you maybe delve into that a little bit deeper and, and explain why those multiple factors are important with regards to um, to water quality impacts, not just uh, intensity. Um, so things like the the environment is that what you mean? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. The um, you know the the hydrology and so on. Yeah, sure. So what you have is, we'll say, you know, you might have a farm that's on light sandy soils. Um, if you do and you're highly stocked, there's a high risk of loss of nutrients down through the soil into groundwater because it can move downwards so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the opposite of that then is if you're in the west of Ireland in um, soils with kind of semi-peaty or with the peaty layer on top of the soil where you have a high water table and you have high rainfall um, on that type of farm, you, you're at a high risk of pea loss. Um, because if you spread um, organic manure or pea on the land and then you have high rainfall afterwards and the soil is already saturated, there's no place for uh, the nutrients and sediment to go except to get washed into the nearest drain and into the nearest river. And the thing is that, um, you know, farmers, they have no control over the environment in which they farm. So they have to deal with it as best they can. And the farmers in those two situations could be at high risk of loss of either NRP, whereas maybe neighbours of theirs are not too far away, could be in different type of soils and may not be at the same level of risk at all. And, you know, to use common parlance, you could have a guy who's a messer, um, but it's his messing on the on the farm isn't going to cause a huge problem. Whereas you, you could have a very conscientious farmer who's doing his absolute best or her best to manage the, the, the soil and the location as well as possible. Um, but because of the soil and the, the hydrology or how quickly uh, nutrients can leach down into groundwater, it's largely outside of their control. And as well as that, then sometimes it can take a long time for nitrates to get down to groundwater. So there could be, a, a, you know, a damaging uh, event today and it might not show up in the groundwater for 10 years, whereas on the pea loss side, it'll, it can show up tomorrow if there's, um, you know, if you're if you're getting nutrients and sediment, pea and sediment carried directly into water and rainfall has a huge impact. If you have rain immediately after spreading slurry um, and you're close to water, you're, you're at high risk of loss of nutrients. And the big the advice from Chagas and all the agencies is that to try and minimize the, the nutrients and and optimize the times that you put everything out, you, the time that you put out your slurry, the earlier in the year that you can put it out, the more active the roots, the grass roots are for taking up nutrients, the more of it will be taken up quickly. So then the less that's available for loss to water. And I suppose that's one of the key messages all the time. And then not to over apply chemical fertilizer which obviously nobody is, is trying to do this year, but with, with the prices. But I think we will learn a lot of lessons from this year in terms of water quality in particular, um, that p- farmers can do a lot to manage their nutrients really, really efficiently and to improve water quality and to improve uh, the money that's in their pockets as well. Yeah, and I suppose 
you kind of touched on it there around the, the very specific localized um, nature of this. And, and I suppose, look, it's maybe in, in certain parts of the country, it's it's maybe on a power scale or, or certainly on a water body scale that you have maybe uniform, more uniformity of land. But and Kyle kind of touched on it as well around the the, the real need for um, our what, what maybe you, you'll, you'll provide guidance to this around what's the best way for tackling this? You know, we have the national uh, uh, picture and the national rules and and you're very much kind of saying that uh, maybe we need to focus a little bit more specifically on, on localised areas and maybe just to, maybe both Cahill and Mary, just to, to give us your thoughts on that as to what, you know, what's the best pathway forward potentially, you know, notwithstanding resources and all that because it'll, it'll take, it's, it's a resourcing issue there as well, but in your own opinion, what would you think might be a, 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 a way going forward? Well, I'd hand over to Conan in a second, but I think that the behavioural work that we're doing with Dennis and his team and with ASAP, um, and again, I compliment the ASAP programme and Noel for, for the level of data that's there um, and the usefulness of it, that as Paula said, what we're trying to look at is there are hundreds of measures within ASAP that are applied differently in different contexts. And this comes back to the whole localised nature of the problem and the solutions. Um, what we're trying to do is to um, come up with clusters of measures that are kind of highly adoptable, if you want to put it that way, that are maybe low cost, that farmers feel they have the knowledge and the know-how to actually adopt them, that farmers think it's a good thing to do and their neighbours think it's a right thing to do, um, and that the, the, the cost is, is reasonable. But one of the important things in terms of cost is sometimes people think of just the financial cost, what we're also trying to look at here is, as Paula described them, transaction costs. So it's not just money. If if uh, if a farmer is asked not to spread slurry on a sloping field that's near a river um, in, in bad weather or not to spread at all, not only is there a financial cost and loss of productivity to that farmer, but there's also a big hassle, nuisance and time cost if he or she has to uh, drive that slurry couple of miles down the road to an out farm or someplace where it, where it can be put out safely. Um, so all of that gets factored in. And that's kind of we're trying to, to tie all the pieces together to bring those cost elements and the, the spatial and the localised nature and the behaviour together to try and come up with kind of a smaller set of measures that we think could be highly adaptable and with good impact as well. Colin, maybe you want to come in on that also. Thanks, Mary. Um, I think water quality is, is, is very challenging. Um, if you look at greenhouse gas emissions, it's dependent really on the number of animals you have and the and the amount of fertilizer you use. It depends on where the farm is. Um, there's very many measures. We saw Paula's work 300 odd um, 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 options that are being advised by ASAP advisors. So very, very skilled advisors, knowing the local situation, knowing what to do on the farm. Challenge is to is to is to take that knowledge and to be able to apply it more widely in, in other areas. So I, 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 it, it is quite significant going back to some of Dennis's work. Um, in terms of um, their engagement advisors on the issue, it, 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 is, a, it is quite a, a significant organisation. Um, uh, I guess that, that the challenge is, 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 is responding to all those, all those needs. We're having, we're having some issues which are, you're lying there, Cahal, they're breaking up a little bit, but uh, it's, it's, it's fine. I think it's, it's working reasonably well. But uh, could I ask, I mean, 
are we looking like based on all of the the work that you presented here are we looking at the need for a, a more targeted uh, approach to our advisory efforts um, across the country given the fact that there are uh, we, we need local uh, solutions to local issues um, and and you know our, our, is your work pointing towards the need for a scaled up version of the asset program beyond the the pri- priority action areas I think I think maybe if I take this because Cahill's line is poor um I, th- I think maybe to look at it two ways mark um you know if you had a magic wand and you could have ASAP advisors all over the country I think would be fantastic and already the um Noel how many years is ASAP on the go three four um 2018 mid 2018 I suppose okay yeah so already in in the the recent EPA water quality report they acknowledge the fact that within the priority areas for action where ASAP is working and that there seems to be a small positive improvement in water quality Um, but as I said one of the problems is is lifetime so we don't know how long it takes for these mitigation actions to to show up and ASAP have had very good levels of engagement with farmers in these areas. Now, these are high risk areas where there's a known issue with water quality. Um, And I don't know if it's feasible. I think it would be great if you could have ASAP trained uh, advisors all over the country. But there's, you know, there's a significant from from an, uh, an advisor perspective. There's a significant knowledge jump there to get to the level where where all the ASAP advisors are. What we're trying to do is to and, uh, you know, it's it's Paula has only started recently working on this in, in, in depth within the project. But if we can get to a stage with the behavioral analysis where we can find those measures and we can describe measures and learn from the ASAP database. So in other words, if I was a non-ASAP advisor um, and it was possible for me to have a tool that would say, I go out to um, to Mark Gibson's farm and I say, this farm is in location XY coordinates, wherever it is. And that the tool would tell me then that the, the type of risk that's here is, it's either N or it's P or it's sediment or whatever. Um, the water quality here is, and the status of the water quality and the trends in the water quality are here. Um, and the type of farmer is, it's livestock farmer, medium size, medium stocking rate. Um, and from the ASAP database, can we uh, learn enough from the database to be able to put forward options for a non-ASAP advisor, for a general, we'd say, Chagask or whoever else, private sector advisor, to be able to learn from what ASAP advisors, um, what they recommended to farmers in this particular context, but also what the level of engagement and uptake of measures was in those particular contexts. So that's where we're trying to get to. And it's it's a bit of the holy grail at the moment. And um, we have a short time left in the project and it's kind of going beyond where we promised in the project, but it's the obvious it's the obvious kind of um, objective at this stage. Um, and that's part of Cahill's kind of work in terms of integrating the cost effectiveness and what we know from all of Yuting's spatial work and Daniel's cost effectiveness work um, and Paula's behavioral work now as well um, to try and integrate all that together. What can we learn from how ASAP has operated both from, from a farmer perspective and from from an advisor perspective to be able to provide 
more generalized information that would be useful for general advisors. So it's a decision support tool for advisors rather than farmers uh, to be able to translate what the specialist uh, ASAP advisors know for mainstream advisors. The, the um, just just to, I, I see Dennis and, and Daniel are there in the background and and Paula you, you think please feel free to jump in at any stage if, if there's a if you want to 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 uh, make a point. Um, Noel back to you. Yeah, uh, just a, a kind of very specific question around the regulations and the implementation of regulations. And is there, have you observed a disconnect between the implementation of the water quality regulations and an understanding of the same regulations objectives? So water quality being the objective, but uh, from farmers on farms or with advisors assisting farmers uh, with compliance of such regulations? So, you know, are people maybe... Um, getting bogged down on, on, on maybe the, the the bureaucratic side of it as opposed to seeing the bigger picture and why why the regulations are there, which is to to, to protect water quality. And have you observed that in your in your uh, analysis to date? That might be one for Dennis. I know he has his hand up to come in there. Mm. Hi there, everyone. Um, I, I actually wanted to come in on the previous point, which is around, uh, it was when Mary was referencing the decision support tool for uh, for advisors, I, I think that's a very good idea. And including the transaction costs would, once once you have the criteria for the lo for location, you can then select the lowest transaction costs for that farmer. The more you know about that farmer's situation, um, and also you, you can also add in certain behavioral questions to see you know how much time they have to do things, what their resources are, and so on. But I think it's it's also really important to one of the things that came out in our analyses is there's a marketplace of, of advisors and farmers choose advisors. And so it's one of these things to always keep in the back of our minds. Uh, and it, I think for advisors, you know, correct me if I'm wrong there, no, you kind of contact that, in, in, you know, in, you know, in the in reality, which is when you're providing advice, you know that your advice if it if it doesn't suit the farmer, the farmer then is going to be thinking might might think twice about going back to to your your advice service. They might go to another advice service to get a diff, get the advice that they want. And so there's there's an interesting role that farmers play as in in a, in that marketplace. And if if you're going to when you have private advisors and as advisors in there providing competing advice, there might be might be you know it might be worth talking to um the private advisory network in terms of you know requirements to bring up certain uh certain uh issues you know because they might it, it might make the advice marketplace unfair if you if you get me so it's one of those things that comes up um uh there we go so it, it might be one of those things that comes up that 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 might uh, be an issue. So just just uh, it, it came up in our in our uh, advisor study. Yeah, and just maybe just on that, uh, actually, uh, in, in that flow chart that you had up, um, Cahal, you know, from from the targets to the research and the environment and, and the flow chart across, and you had the advisories there, but the, the only one that wasn't connected in the link was the the private advisors. And I suppose uh, to me, you know, that that is a big gap. In what we're trying to achieve and maybe you know have you any thoughts on, as to how we can um you know engage better and and, and mainstream it more because i think mainstreaming is, is is a very important point that you made on the same slide i think um so obviously 
uh, we need to, and, and, and within our own Chagos advisors as well, outside of ASAP, how do we maybe land those those uh, messages and get them more ingrained into the into the advisory um, uh, discourse, the daily advisory discourse? I, I guess that goes back to the the, the overall philosophy of, of changing the behaviour of those who, who set the incentives. Motivates um, uh, private sector advisors. Um, do they have the information flows they, they need? Are they, the guidelines there? Um, are, um, often uh, very schemes can inform what 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 uh, private sector advisors will do. So to look at, to to look at them as a group and um, to see what what they need. Um, so it's I guess I, I I don't think we Dennis looked at the at the private advisors and and, and Rosella in in their focus group. Um, we, we tried, but we were we weren't able to get get people on board uh, within the time frame, unfortunately. Um, but it, it, this is more just a, a an approach um, to look at the individual. Um, uh, components of the innovation system, include, including private advisor, but also um, regulators and civil servants and people in Chagas and people in universities. Um, we, we all need to think about what we do and our, and our role in, in that in that system. It's not all saying change. Um, we, we all need to think about how we how we change um, to, to 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 deliver the final outcome. We're, we're coming close to the end. I, I have a question. It's, it's a more a general question, and and uh, all feel free to contribute to this one. It, it, like earlier this year, um, we we saw the the invasion of of Ukraine, and suddenly food security came right up the agenda, and uh, that coupled with sustainability, and and. You, you have farmers, uh, there are a lot of asks for farmers at the moment. You have biodiversity, you have water quality, you have climate change, and then you have food security as well in, in the mix as well. Uh, is, 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 are we, are we, I won't say are we asking too much, but are we, are we, are these, all of these different asks being properly coordinated um, or are we resourcing it enough? Uh, I know, Cahill, you talked about the, the capital constraints and the risk and the time and so forth, but there's a, there, there's a huge amount coming at farmers at the moment. And I'm just wondering, are, is there enough, are we, are, is there enough, uh, coordination of that or is there enough support around all of those because if, if we are serious about wanting uh high water quality low carbon food uh and a um you know a fantastic wildlife and, and biodiversity and and farmers also obviously making a, a, a viable living out of of the sector as well um is, is there not is there enough uh, collaboration happening around all of those different issues might come in on, on two aspects. I mean, one, um, there is probably more we can do um, to have um, a lower environmental footprint from agriculture, but we have to pay for it. It, it comes with the cost. Um, there are win-win measures, but they're not all win-wins. And so we need to, 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 to see how we can do that. If we lose nutrients, um, there's a cost to the environment and a cost to the farmer. And then more widely, there are so many different goals for our land. Uh, both food security and in terms of various environmental goals. Um, they are not joined up. They're not necessarily coherent. They're not necessarily all achievable. Um, um, very many people have suggested that we need a, a national um, land use planning and framework or strategy with the information to be able to make 
um, which which are hard choices. I mean, there there are trade-offs. We may not be able to achieve all the goals we've set, but we have no current framework either um, to make those. Uh, and so we, we depend a lot on, on um, narrative. Um, so I think it's essential that the, that the country develop as soon as possible. And there is planning um, at the moment, um, but to, to, to roll out that, that land use planning, to work out what's in the best interest of the country and then to resource properly. Mary, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, just I, I guess maybe to learn from what we're doing in this project and our learnings from taking an innovation system approach, our innovation system approach just looked at the water quality component of the agri-environment. But I guess what's needed maybe is an innovation system that takes in water quality, greenhouse gases, um, biodiversity, land use, landscape, recreation, all of these things. As, as Kaha said, there are so many demands on the systems from our landscape and um, uh, that you know maybe all the people involved in all the different elements need to sit down and and look at their own innovation system rather than just look at at our individual sections okay uh, just to, to, to Sorry, Dennis, we're, talk, we're getting tight on time if you yeah, could just maybe to make it brief say, you know uh and you think then that farmers at, at the very bottom of all of that all of these different responsibilities and then they've all the different regulations for all the different chemicals all the different electricity all the different buildings they need to do i i think yeah i think we need to to, to work on ways of coordinating all of this so there's an onus on that system to to really coordinate uh absolutely couldn't agree more uh look we, we're we're out of time i want to say thank you uh to all our presenters Cahill, mary paula uh dennis and daniel and uh you ting is is there in the background as well thank you for all of your your contribution today noel thanks for helping with questions and I want to say thanks uh, to Yvonne Maher, who's helping in the background, along with Andy Boland and Pat Murphy, in terms of the organization of this series. Um, next week, we're going to be joined by uh, Rebecca Davis and Molly Burns from Leaf UK, and uh, they'll be discussing linking environment and farming. This is a, a group that's in the UK, and I think will be a really interesting model for us to look at from an Irish perspective. Thanks again, everybody. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.